This is the Criterion Creeps Podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. RJ Baylog. And we're just two guys who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spine number at a time in order of release. This week, we're fastening our corsets, going on a picnic, and disappearing into the unknown and watching spine number 29 of the Criterion Collection, Peter Weir's A Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975. But first, RJ, how are things? Uh, things are pretty good. Um, uh, I don't really have much to report. I'm unemployed now, so yep. <laughs> uh, th- nothing interesting is really happening with me. No, you've hit a real rut already, right out of the gate. <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't call it a rut. I mean, I'm at home. I'm drinking all day. <laughs> uh, I'm watching movies and eating Burger King and the Pizza Hut and hanging out with my cats. So, mm-hmm. you know, in some people's eyes... I'm winning. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, some people would probably like really admire the, the time that you have. The, yeah, I mean, I've only been done for like a week. I can like take a little bit of a break, right? Mm-hmm. I'm applying for jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I had an interview and then uh, it turned out I was like not at all qualified for the job, but oh. whatever. <laughs> whatever. Still counts. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How are you doing? Uh, doing just fine. I've got a day and a half left the, before the end of the year, and then I get the rest of the year off and don't go back till uh, January 3rd or something. Maybe you never go back. Maybe I'll never Have go back. Have you considered that? That's, it's always a possibility. I don't like to think about it, though. Oh, like you get sad that I like I might end it? Well, yeah, that's possible, too. There's all sorts well, of possibilities. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> Well, I, I, I always picture the way, like, I always pictured the way I would go out, and now that I'm gone, it doesn't matter, but I could still do it for you, is that one day you just show up, mm. and there's, like, a new guy in your desk, right? and you're like, hey, what's going on? And there's like, huh? Oh, I'm Brian. Like, I, I work here. And then you go talk to someone else, you're like, there's someone in my desk, and they're like, who are you? And they're like, Brian's worked here forever. And then they just, they totally phase you out. But not in like a way that's like interesting or anything like that. They just really don't like you, so they like made this elaborate plan to get rid of you. Oh. So I could put that into motion. As I said, I'm unemployed, so I got nothing but time now. You could be the Brian. Yes. Well, you would know me, but I would hire mm-hmm. a series of actors to portray the roles. Right. Well, hey RJ, since you've Yo. been unemployed uh, and have like lots of free time on your hands, what have you been creeping on this week? Oh, man, I've been creeping on all sorts of stuff. Uh, I guess the question is, what do I start with? I don't uh, know. You tell me. I'm going to I'm gonna save the Christmas movies. Okay. I've watched a few of those. Uh, but I guess the big ticket, what people are here for, is uh, those Mel Gibson movies, mm-hmm. The Fallen Sun. So I, I made a week of it. I watched a whole bunch of Mel Gibson movies, and I doubled down, and I watched a bunch of... Uh, the show's current episode director, Peter Weir, I watched a bunch of his movies as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could say, I'm Jarrett now. I'm the one who's prepared to come <laughs> to this party with full, fully loaded guns. Yeah, you've uh, delved into that uh, filmography. The filmography, yes. So I guess I'll just I'll just get into it then. How does that sound? Sounds fine by me. Uh, so first I watched a movie that you also watched called okay. Gal- Gallipoli. Yes. Uh, which is an Australian movie from Peter Weir from 1980s. And we got big Mel Gibson. 81. 81. Yeah, that's close enough. Yeah. I'm going to be very liberal with my uh, interpretations and 
synopses of these movies. Well, we are post fact now, so post fact. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. No one's going to check this, and they can't. Mm-hmm. So and, 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 and you don't care. I don't care. Yeah, yeah it I, I've never, I've never cared about accuracy in our show. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that movie about? Oh yeah, so he had this blonde guy, and he was a really fast track runner, like me. Because uh, he had that good form where you run heel to or toe to heel. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. So he was a good runner, and uh, but there was a war going on, uh, and the British were taking over Turkey or something like that. So the Australians got recruited. I think it really happened. Doesn't matter. Um, I also what was it? World War One. Yeah. Yeah, World War One. Okay. So from the way you described it, it sounds like the Australians are going to help the Turkish fight the British. <laughs> Um. Oh no! They. I think they fight the Turks. Yeah, yes, but they right. Don't like, but they don't like the British either. Yeah, no one likes so, the British. So you got the blonde runner, and then uh, he crosses paths with Mel Gibson, who's like not a con man, but like a like a wandering bum kind of deal. A hobo. And, uh, a hobo of sorts. And uh, the blonde guy is like, "Hey man, why don't you join with me?" And he's like, "I don't want to join with you. I'm Mel Gibson." He's like, I don't like the British. They killed my pa. And he's like, it's okay, man. And uh, and then they join. And uh, and then they go fight. Johnny Turk, as they call him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a movie. Uh, you get a lot of hot abs. Mel Gibson wears a crop top in this movie, which I thought was amazing. As you know, I do like the crop tops. Uh, you get some man love in this movie. This whole movie is just about two dudes who love each other, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, anyways, uh, I thought this movie was pretty good. Um, I don't know. Uh, it was a cool story. I thought it was better than other war movies. Um, that's really all I have to say about Gallipoli. Mm, what, yeah. what do you have to say about this movie? Well, uh, when I, uh, heard you were going to watch this this week, I decided, Hey, I've owned this DVD of this movie for years and I've never watched it. And it's always been on my radar because, I like me some of that Peter Weir sometimes, and so I checked it out, and I thought it was okay. Um, yep. Uh, I don't know. Not it, much it, to it, it. Not much to it. It kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it really made me think about uh, Hacksaw Ridge, because oh, there's a right. lot of like similarities between those two movies. Mm-hmm. So I always think, well, Mel Gibson always think, uh, you know, Gallipoli really needed and what it needed was uh, torsos, lifeless torsos being used as shields and mm-hmm. people's faces getting rendered uh, apart by bullets and stuff. So, because Gallipoli does not have any of that. People just get shot, like, boringly, I guess, as they off, off run screen. toward, um, yeah, kind of on screen, but, like, there's no blood. They're just mowed down mm-hmm. by machine gun fire. It's all very classy um, as opposed to Hacksaw Ridge. But I kind of feel about the same about both movies where mm-hmm. um, I, I think I had a sense of what Peter Weir was going for with this movie more so than I think uh, I did with Mel Gibson's. But mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, I mean, it was okay. it was an all right movie about war. Um, yep. What about Man Love? The, the, uh, I, I didn't get that that as much. Like you, oh. you were, yeah, I didn't think, I didn't really get that, like the friendship thing that strongly. Uh, oh. I've seen it elsewhere more prevalent mm-hmm. um so uh, the, the end of the movie is really good mm-hmm. uh i'd say like the first bit of the movie is very strong and then it kind of like then they go get lost in the desert because they took the wrong train and then you get that sequence and then them getting ready to maybe go to war and then they do and then you get to go tr- go through training 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's like all very like, oh, this is all easygoing. War is kind of great. Like it's just fun. You yep. get to hang out with your friends and mess around and give like um, the people whose land you're in a hard time and like trash their store, even though they're the wrong people because they look a little like. Um, and it's all kind of just like, yep, that's the sort of stuff that exists in movies that happens. And then uh-huh. the, the battle stuff goes on at the end, and it's kind of intense and sad and depressing, like World War One always is. It's like the yep. like the shittiest, crappiest war, because if you're in the trenches, you just are there to get killed. Um, and I mean, that's like kind of like a, a Peter Weir streak of like kind of like the anti-authoritarian thing that always kind mm-hmm. of creeps up in his movies, um, right. where. Yeah, it's like, why are we listening to this person? But I think World War One. I, I think that's like kind of like, how can you not question authority when right. your commanding officer just says, "Well, you have to go. You have to go and run over the top and get get killed because that's the right thing to do, even though it makes no sense whatsoever for your own self interest." Mm-hmm. Nationalism is a scary thing, RJ. I guess. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, you, you're, you'll go be team go. Follow the follow what my commander says, regardless of how wrong he is and I'm going yeah to but die. i'm the commander I'm... so people got to follow me regardless of whether it makes sense or not you're gonna get one of those cushy uh, officer positions so you don't have to get your hands yeah. bloody in the mud might as well i'm not doing anything else yeah but no yeah i agree with you i forgot that too it's it's super hacksaw ridgy um if i had seen this before i had seen hacksaw ridge when we had watched hacksaw ridge i'd been like man he just remade gallipoli mm-hmm. but with more blood and stuff yeah one hundred percent more Andrew Garfield. The hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, no, I thought it was fine. I'd probably watch it again, but maybe not for like ten years. Right. Uh, so next, Jared, mm-hmm. I continued that Peter Weir train. Yeah. With a movie he made the year after his follow-up to Gallipoli, uh, a movie called The Year of Living Dangerously, and this was a movie that stunk. <laughs> oh man, okay. Peter Weir's I'm got some. Really curious why you think this movie sucks. I've never seen it. Um, yeah. it's always, again, it's like kind of like his back to back movie he did with Nell. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've, I don't even really know what this movie's really about. Uh, I know the poster, it's got a really nice painted poster. Um, yeah. but like, I really don't know much about it. And no one really seems to talk about it too much. Probably for a good reason. Hmm. It stinks. It's got a great uh, title. Too. All, yeah. I'm gonna lay it all out for you, Jer. Um, so what I discovered in my Peter Weir week is he's got some highs. And he's got some lows, man. And this is probably the lowest one of his that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very weird. You got Mel Gibson with the most generic ass white guy name ever called Guy Hamilton. <laughs> uh, and he is a reporter who goes to uh, Jakarta to like, I don't know. Or he's a journalist who goes to report re- Jakarta, Jesus, uh, to report on like the social turmoil and like, uh, the military's control over the people and like the military controls the city, but then all the people are very poor and it's like, this isn't right. What are we going to do? Uh, in the midst of that, you have Linda Hunt, who is, I only, she's in lots of stuff, but I only know her as like the, t- the small lady from the Incredibles, um, which is an animated movie. But I mean, she's in other stuff, sure. right? Yep. Uh, and she plays a man in this movie, which was kind of weird, um, even though she is not a man. But you couldn't tell. And, and she not, played and a- not just a man, but also an Asian man. Yes. <laughs> uh, an Asian man named Billy. Yeah. Um, Billy Kwan, uh, which actually she was probably uh, she was definitely the best part of this movie. Like yeah. you couldn't even tell she was a lady, yeah. a white lady, <laughs> not a uh, Chinese man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, she was really good. She was like, uh, when she when Mel first arrives, there's like a hotel where all the the white people stay, like mm-hmm. all the journalists, and she's a journalist there as well. And like she meets up with Mel, and she's like, I'm gonna show you like what the city's really about and stuff like that. She's like, because you look like a man of integrity. And then you kind of like figure out that maybe Linda Hunt is like, or Billy Kwan, sorry. Uh, maybe Billy Kwan is like not actually a journalist. Maybe he's like a secret agent mm-hmm. trying to like work things on the inside. And then through uh, Billy Kwan, Mel meets Sigourney Weaver, who is uh, a lady and also like some sort of journalist. I don't know. like Or she's like an ambassador of some sort for like uh, England. So she has her own vested interests and stuff like that. And then Mel hooks up with her and she tells him something in confidence, but he's a journalist, so he wants to run with the scoop. And then uh, you get some tension. Uh, someone gets thrown out a window. Um, so it sounds pretty good. It sounds like it's a really good movie. But there's just nothing going on. Like, it's just really boring. Like, you have entire scenes where it's just Linda Hunt looking at, like, a wall of pictures. And then, like, voiceover of her being, like, Tolstoy said that war is economic turmoil. I disagree. And then you'll get, like, typewriters going and stuff like that. Like, that's, like, almost the entire movie. Um... I don't know, man. Like, it's very, it was just boring. Like, uh, Mel wasn't in it, like, even that much. So, I don't have much to say about him. It was, I rated pretty low in my Mel Gibson uh, list, but just because he doesn't do anything, he's just there. Hmm. Like, uh, he doesn't do any real acting. Not that I could tell. Not that he's bad or anything. He's just, I don't know. There's nothing going on in this fucking movie, Jarrett. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, did, it did, sounds. Did you expect more uh, living dangerously? Yeah, I well, I certainly did. The only dangerous thing is when, uh, spoiler, uh, someone gets thrown out a window, and then at the end, Mel Gibson's trying to like flee Jakarta, and at that point, you're like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you want to leave? This place is a shithole. Yeah, it's like because he his whole thing was like, I gotta crack the story, but then like, I don't know for whatever reason, he's just like, oh, okay, well. Maybe I'm not, I don't want to anymore. And then he leaves and that's the end of the movie. And you're just like, well, what you're like, what was the point of all this? It's like, yeah, we get it. Like it's a bad place. It's dangerous, but you don't show any of that. And there's like a really half assed love story between the two of them shoehorned in there that goes nowhere. Like it's like at least a half an hour of the movie is them like, will they, won't they? And then like betray trust, but it doesn't lead to anything. Like there's no fucking point to it. So I, I watched this movie in the morning one day and I was just like, man, what a dump. Like I was like on my phone, like I was just so bored watching this fucking movie. So I can't recommend it to anyone. All right. And that's a Mel Gibson fan saying that. Actually, if you were like really into Linda Hunt and you wanted to see her, her like her, like uh, basically give the performance of her life is a uh, Asian man, Billy Kwan. Yeah. Um, and absolutely. This is the movie for you because she was spectacular, but everything else is just like, well, it's like, why even show up? What is this movie about? Great. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, and then I'm just, I'm going to talk take a little detour here before I finish with my other Peter Weir movie. Okay. Uh, so I, uh, I crammed in this morning. I went nautical, uh, with my naughty boys or, uh, nautical buoys as some people like to call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was with the naughty boys and I followed up with my Mel 
with a 1984 classic by Roger Donaldson called The Bounty. Uh, and this one starred Anthony Hopkins as Lieutenant Bly, captain of the HMS Bounty, Mel Gibson as the first mate, and then you got fucking Lawrence Olivier in this bad boy. You got Liam Neeson as like, uh, what are those deck boys called? Poop decks? Yeah. Yeah, Liam Neeson is like a poop deck boy in this. Yeah. And then you got motherfucking Daniel Day-Lewis in this bad boy too as like super young supporting actor, which is kind of, I, I was super surprised to see him. Mm-hmm. So this one is all about, uh, I don't know, like British endeavors on the, sailboats. The mutiny on the bounty. Yeah, the mutiny on the bounty, if people are unaware. So they like, they go down to Tahiti uh, because the king at the current time wants grapefruits. So uh, they go down to like get a bunch of grapefruits. And uh, Anthony Hopkins is the captain and he's real sweet. He's real cool and tough man, Jerry. He's a tough man. He's a tough man. But uh, Mel Gibson gets uh, seduced by the local native women uh, with their um, no shirts and uh, boobs out all the time, he can't help it. He's a man, damn it. Mm. He's not like Anthony Hawkins. He can't control his sexual urges. So he gets seduced, uh, and then they're going to leave, but uh, Mel Gibson doesn't want to leave. And that's basically the whole reason there was a mutiny. Well, that and then like Liam Neeson was like a really shitty poop decker and like they abandoned ship one night one day to go like bang all the natives and then they came back and they should have been hanged. But Anthony Hopkins is like, all right, I'll let you off. I'll just give you a good flogging. So you get lots of flogging in this movie, which was cool. Uh, And then so, yeah, then they do a mutiny. Mel Gibson takes the ship. Uh, Anthony Hopkins and Daniel Day Lewis go off on a little buoy and uh, they get picked up by some other dudes. And uh, you see Mel Gibson go back to Tahiti where they're not welcome anymore, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, And then they kind of sail around. And uh, I guess what happened really was like Anthony Hopkins character, like they got rescued and then uh, they told their story. And then uh, the Mel Gibson and all the mutiners, they found like a couple of them, but they assumed that a lot of them just murdered each other, which is cool. Yeah. um, It's been a really long time since I watched The Bounty. Yeah. but I remember being mm-hmm. an okay movie. Um, I thought it was really good. It's interesting you kind of reading, like t- talking about it, because like I watched uh, Mutiny on the Bounty uh, from 1935 earlier this sure. year. I uh, won Best Picture, so it was kind of on my list of best pictures to get around to watching. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really good. Um, yep. But in it, so Charles Lawton, uh, actor and director of that movie Night of the Hunter uh, that people always talk oh. about. So he plays Captain Bly. Uh, in yeah. that version, and Clark Gable, he plays uh, the Christian Mel Gibson character. Sure. Um, and yeah, it definitely paints uh, Bly way more as like kind of a piece of shit that like yep. they definitely should definitely mutiny on. Mute. Um, but I think like the historical record has shown that like Bly was in, like yeah he was a harsh captain, but that was like the system of the time, and mm-hmm. uh, he was he's definitely been more vilified. Um, right. In like the course of like the papers and stuff like that in the eighteen mm-hmm. hundreds. Um, yes so the way they show him in this is basically like yeah he's like tough or he's like firm but like it's justified because it's like listen man if you don't if you don't like keep a strong hand then that's how you get a mutiny but Mm -hmm. then he gets mutinied anyways yeah um but yeah i'll just just really briefly like i thought it was really good uh anthony hopkins is the fucking man like that dude knows how to act 
I don't know if anyone's ever reported that before, but uh, he's a pretty good actor. <laughs> uh, Mel was really good. Um, it's not like his best movie or anything. He's not in it that much, but he had a couple of really good scenes. Uh, Liam Neeson and Daniel Day-Lewis are also good. I mean, when you have those two guys as fucking supporting actors, you got a pretty w- well-rounded cast. Well, that was uh, all before those guys became anything, though, too. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you can see early on that they got uh, they got that good acting. Liam Neeson looks fucking crazy in this movie. He's like kind of bald, but with like a mullet. Like he just looks super gross and greasy, which I guess was the point. But uh, no, I like this movie, man. Like I thought it showed um a lot of stuff good, like kind of just how shitty it would be to live on a fucking boat. Mm-hmm. There's like times where it's like rocking and they're just water's pouring in like on dudes and hammocks and you're just like, man, this fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was good. However, it was not. Oh, sorry. What no, were you gonna I, say? I was going to mention too. It's uh, fitting that you uh, watched uh, this because actually Roger Donaldson, the director of this, he's also an Australian. Uh, well, yeah, I planned that all out. Yeah. Totally. Out That's not perfect. a coincidence at all. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I liked it. That's a it's a solid recommend for uh, naughty boys. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real reason I watched this was because I wanted I wanted to get one more Mel movie in, but I also wanted to get a uh, a different uh, nautical adventure in before a movie that I had never seen from our, our again aforementioned director of the evening, Peter Weir, and that movie was Master and Commander, uh, Far Side of the World, which I had never seen. Much to your dismay, my anger, um, <laughs> anger embarrassment uh just you were so disappointed with me (laughs) and i can see why now but i mean uh yeah you were really upset i don't know if that's i think it was more it was like i I guess like it was utter disbelief that you hadn't hadn't seen this movie considering Mm -hmm. that you like your uh your man movies and you like russell crowe and this movie is like kind of the pinnacle of both those things in a lot of ways yes um and it's just like a goddamn amazing movie um Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you, and I was like, what? You hadn't seen this? And I, I kind of forgot mm-hmm. that you hadn't watched it. And then you were mentioning, hey, uh, should I watch Master Commander or something? I went, wait, what? You haven't watched that again? So, yeah, yeah. That, that's what that was about. Yeah, so uh, I'm just going to talk about this briefly. Uh, people know the story. Or I'm oh, just going to assume they, they do. Uh, maybe? So we got Russell Crowe. He's the master and commander of his boat. And uh, it is during Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, Reign of Terror and England has said uh, at the start, it is explained that ocean is the ocean is now a battlefield. And so Russell Crowe's boat is uh, tasked with the duty of hunting down this French supply ship, basically, and just taking them out by uh, s- sink, uh, burn, or capture, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. And so you get just an amazing adventure of them crossing paths with these guys, and then they go to the islands. They get their native scene very quickly. Um, and then there's turtles and Paul Bettany's in here doing like amazing things that Paul Bettany does. Although he has a brunette hair, which is very off putting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, as I was talking about Peter Weir, he had some highs and some lows and this is definitely the high. Uh, I would, I'd be hard pressed to say whether I think Truman show or master and commander is his best. Yep. Uh, basically they're tied, I think. Uh, but this show is just like such a lavish, like it's amazing how much they put into like the sets and even just small things like the stuff I think that I thought was really amazing in this movie was like really small details about ship life. Yeah. Like there's a scene where the doctor's about to do something and he like puts like it's like gunpowder or like dirt on the floor so he can like 
gets some firm grounding before he like tries to get in there and stuff like that. Uh, you get scenes where you got like 40 men up on the sails, which is just fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the scenes, all the sets and like stuff like that is just awesome. This movie's wicked. It is a man movie, as you said. Uh, and this movie, again, like I was saying earlier, this one really highlights like how shitty boat life would be. Mm-hmm. But it's also it was a nice contrast to the bounty because in the bounty, like everyone was fucking miserable with each other. But in Master and Commander, it was like there's a very communal family vibe. Like everyone was happy to be like, well, everyone was like on good terms with each other. So it was a lot more uplifting. But there were scenes where you get like you run out of water and then you just have to wait for it to rain. And it's like, yeah, that would really fucking suck. Yeah, it's like even or, though you're are surrounded by water. <laughs> yeah. Water, water everywhere, Jared. No. Um, yeah, you get dudes overboard in the fucking storms, and you just have to let them go. Like, uh, one detail I thought was awesome is uh, Peter Weir with his camera. He, like, just kind of tilts it left and tilts it mm. right sometimes to, like, give you that that motion of being like on the ocean you get what i did there yeah but uh it's awesome like there were moments where i was just like i'm getting a little yeah seasick uh yeah no master and commander is fucking awesome and it really reminded me i've talked about it before uh but the dan simmons book the terror which i think is the ultimate example of fucking uh nautical survival and and how miserable it fucking really is because those motherfuckers get got frozen in the ice and they had nowhere to go uh, and all their food was tainted. Oh, yeah. Um, so th- I, yeah. Well, yeah. So, the terror is good. And, and, Anyways. And, and as is Master and Commander. Yeah. Yes, um, I've always wanted good. to check out because it's actually the, uh, it's, it's based on the first book of a series of novels uh, by Patrick O'Brien. Um, it's like mm-hmm. the Aubrey Maturin series. And there's 20 of these books. And I guess like oh, they're just cool. like crazy in their like attention to detail of like sea life and ropes mm-hmm. and like just like every single like uh, piece of minutia. So a lot of that was yeah. like, I mean, I mean, this was like a big like uh, passion project, I think, for Peter Weir, too, because I, th- I believe mm-hmm. he was like a big fan of the book. And like he wanted like, they wanted to turn this into a series, but the movie didn't do great. Um, Man, which is just sucks. like such a bummer because it's like compared to like all this garbage that gets made into like sequels and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Because um, I mean, its budget was 150 million and it did make like 212, but mm-hmm. I guess it just didn't go any further than that. Or I don't know. Um, I think I'm just reading on Wikipedia. Uh, he said that it was most unlikely that they would ever make another one of these because I think it was just like for the amount of time and effort this movie was like to make, mm-hmm. it's just like no one's going to do this movie uh, properly again. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I'm glad we got one because it's an amazing fucking movie. Yeah. But uh, that is super depressing that uh, it's like in a perfect world, this would have got like 10 fucking sequels and they would have all been awesome. Oh yeah, oh, man. Yeah, like those, like uh, like the cannonball fights. Uh, oh yeah, it's just like there's like yeah, like you don't get the sense in like a lot of movies of like what a cannonball would do to you if it hit mm-hmm. you. It's always just like this abstract thing of like oh no, there's like people falling off of like parapets and towers and yep. stuff like that. Like it's it wasn't until like I don't know, kind of like 
the, your 21st century like war movies started coming along um like even saving private ryan in like the late 90s but like where you actually started getting a real sense of like what military combat was and like it had right. a certain vermissitude uh to like yeah. the weight of combat and like yeah that mm-hmm. that was applied here really really well like where it's like yeah this is what happens when a bouncing ball, lead ball just comes shooting mm-hmm. across at you in your wood boat um and mm-hmm. like when water when you start t- bringing on water um when you're like when you run out of water, um, you are going to get incredibly thirsty and like you can't do mm-hmm. anything. And the idea of rationing and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And like yeah, no, and, oh, and yeah. the other thing too is there's like the one sequence in this movie that's like one of my all-time favorite things in a movie is uh, Paul Bettany's uh, like kind of like when he's on the island and he's mm-hmm. kind of doing the Darwin thing. Yeah. And he's like on the island and he's like running around and he's grabbing all these animals and the music plays and he's like finally yeah. getting to do what he wants to do on this goddamn doomed voyage mm-hmm. that his like best friend is making him go on and this like weird case of like revenge and yeah. obsession. And then like he realizes, oh, they found the boat and he gets the call and he's like, fuck. And he has to drop everything. And it's yeah. just like, uh, I think it's just absolutely beautiful. One of oh, the, it's, yeah, yeah, it's filmed so, so nice. Like you just get that map of cages with uh, all the animals crawling out it, it's so pretty um but yeah you're right the combat is filmed fucking amazingly like it's so well done like the i that's another thing like when you think about these boats like you think they would just kind of like pull up beside each other and just shoot which is like what happens sometimes but it, it was like the idea of them like trying to circle each other yeah. to try to get back in range and like stuff like that is so is was really well done and when you mentioned the detail that was another thing uh, that in this movie reminded me of the terror. They have like sail masters and like ice masters and stuff like that. Yep. Like that was a big part in the terror is like uh, the ice masters who would like have to sit at the front and like judge the quality of the ice on if they could break through. And then the sail masters who would like fucking make the sails and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that is really cool that I think gets um, forgotten in a lot of like big like movies like this, like I don't think any of those pirates movies have like a fucking sail master who's like, nope. like the whole, they give him an, an entire scene dedicated to how he makes the sails or something like that. No. But it's like, yeah, of course those people would have to be there. Like, cause uh, that's another thing they show really well in this movie is like when the boat gets fucked up, it's like, well, what are you going to do? You're in the middle of the ocean. You got to fix it. So there's like a bunch of people there whose job it is to like repair the boat in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So that stuff was all really yeah. good. And I also think it's like the best Star Trek movie ever, because um, if you oh, just like yeah. if you just think like Russell Crowe is Kirk, and then like Paul yeah. Bettany is like he's like your uh, McCoy Spock kind of uh, mashup, Thanks. and it's like it's Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good, and it's got some dark stuff. You see some uh, little kids get amputated and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, oh yeah, the medical little, operations in that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of little kids on these like uh, Navy like journeys and stuff like that. What's what's that deal? Are they- they orphans or are they like kids of privilege who are going to be like raised to be captains so they go on boats it varies i mean like you can you yeah if you're like a junior officer or whatever you probably come from like a rich family of officers Mm -hmm. like it's like i mean i've read a whole book like when i was doing like a bunch of research on the franklin expedition um like i got like a real beat down on sort of like the specifics of like the british navy and like its system and like how there's like this it's it's a hierarchy right it's like uh like 
Britain was still a caste mm-hmm. system. Like there was definite divisions between like your middle class rich people and your poor. And like so, these right. kids is like your little scallions and stuff like that. They're just like brought in because it's like, well, you know, you can become a man and get your like it's like an apprenticeship. Um, and right. they, and they're little and they can get in between spots and like do basic labor that like full adults can't do anymore because they're little uh, kids. It's just like, yeah, it was a different time. Uh, you didn't have right. to pay them very much and they were just like around for a ride because it's like mm-hmm. maybe it's better than living in like abject poverty in your own neighborhood. Maybe you could uh, go sail around the world and then that becomes your job and you get to <laughs> go home once like every couple of years. I think that's pretty cool. I would do that. Yeah. The snow piercer approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just jam them into wherever they fit. That's right. Um, but no, yeah. So that was my adventure down uh, the Peter Weir hole. So uh, for once, I actually did some research for our episode, and I watched a bunch of this fucking guy's movies. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. Well, most of them I liked. Yeah. Uh, the Year of Living Dangerously, I would not recommend. Yeah. Um. So. I Whatever. guess for as far as movies that I watched, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to mention the one. Um, I checked out that A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. Um, so I bought this blind on Blu-ray like a year ago because it was like uh-huh. cheap on Amazon. And I just like, it was one of those movies that popped up on a lot of lists. Yeah. Um, and I kind of had delayed and delayed. I think I even lent it to you at one point. Um, yep. And then I kept seeing people kind of coming out and saying, eh, I don't know about this movie. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, great. Well, um, I finally watched it. And I can confirm this movie is kind of lousy. Uh, it, mm-hmm. I, it's weird because, like, so many common things I've read about this movie is talk about, it talks about how gorgeous it looks and the beautiful cinematography. But yeah. I thought it just looked like a movie that was shot with digital cameras and then turned black and white. Um, having seen some, like, really amazing-looking movies lately and mm-hmm. uh, seeing, like, what actual black and white photography is supposed to look like uh, from watching, mm-hmm. like, movies from, like, pre-code era. And I don't know. I thought this movie just looked kind of crappy like it wasn't the worst looking movie or anything by any means but like it mm-hmm. just wasn't that striking and the story like i'd lost total interest in this movie almost in like five minutes and then it kept yep. going and i kept kind of waiting for it to get me back and it just never did um mm-hmm. i think like the movie's like supposedly like set in like a fictional city in iran but yeah it's like she's shot in los angeles i guess Mm-hmm. I it's weird. I don't know. I don't know why anyone talked about this movie. I like other than it's like it, it's attempting to be an art film, and then people right. respond to that. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. We've talked about this before. Like uh, things like the Babadook and stuff like that. They get overhyped to a point where, like, when I watched the Babadook, I was like, Nah, this movie's not very good, even. But then, like, I think you said, you're like this. I, you're like well, uh, I mean, a girl walks home alone at night makes the Babadook, Babadook look like a fucking masterpiece. It's like the Shining in comparison, yeah. like yeah, I'm like I don't know. Babadook was like I I was okay with that movie, but I mean mm-hmm. compared to like how people talked about that movie, it's like right. completely out of proportion. Um, and then mm-hmm. I don't know this though. I thought it was just like kind of just a bad movie, and I don't know why it, it's it, it's so. I don't actually know if it gets brought up too much anymore. Babadook still does. Um, yeah. And I like, don't think it does anymore, but it did have like it, it had a pretty like vocal contingent of people like championing it. Like, man, this is the best thing for horror in years. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it stinks. It's stinks. super boring. It's trash, man. It's trash. Because I remember when I watched it too, like 
I think uh, I took away that. I was like, yeah, this movie's really boring and I'm not interested. But I did think it had some nice shots. But maybe if I went back, I wouldn't even see that. And I'd just be like, no, this movie's boring. But I never will because I'm never going to watch it again. Yeah, why so. would you watch it again? Doesn't matter, I guess. Well, maybe like in 10 years when there's like a best horror films of the 2010s, it'll be on there again. It'll be like, well, maybe I should watch it mm-hmm. again and give it a try again. Because sometimes that works out. But this first viewing did not go super well. Yeah. No I thanks. I don't see it. I don't see it. Um, yeah. Not for us. That's enough movie talking. Um, hey, yeah. what's happening in the news? The news? You want to hear about news, baby? Sure. Hey, you uh, You know that Martin Scorsese guy? Yes. He's pretty popular right now with that new movie, Silence, he has coming out, hey? Yep. Uh, so I just heard this thing today, and uh, I think it's pretty topical because a lot of people... Uh, uh, this is currently a big issue with a movie that just came out. Uh, so you know how? Did you hear Scorsese's next movie is gonna a movie called The Irishman that's gonna have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino? Uh, nope. I I kind of don't trust anything he says until the movie's made. He he, okay. he, has, he has so many movies on the go. Uh, I'm still right. waiting for his Dean Martin movie to come out. <laughs> uh, well, if Tom um, Hanks, uh, oh, it, it was supposed to happen well, like in 1999, and it never did. Maybe now, because uh, apparently uh, Martin Scorsese is going to use that uh, CGI to do de-aging computer technology for Robert De Niro and Al Pacino for this Irishman movie, which sounds fucking Uh, horrible. And the reason uh, I bring it up is because neither of us have seen the new Star Wars movie, mm -hmm. but uh, I have heard that as a very common uh, vocal complaint is that it's like they they bring back all these dead actors with CGI and uh, a lot of people don't give a shit. A lot of people are like, whatever. And a lot of people are like, what the fuck? Well, see, so. in, in like these examples, though, like there's only one dead actor they bring back because oh, okay. it's Peter Cushing. Right. Yeah. Um, but and then like, yeah, then there's also Carrie Fisher and it's like, well, she's still alive. And so is Robert De Niro. And like, it's like, yeah. uh, why are we doing this with like people who are alive? And it, it's uh, I don't know. I it, it always looks horrible. It, there's never a good mm-hmm. way of doing this. Um, like I just think back to like uh, Terminator Salvation. Yeah. Uh, and then you got like horrible CGI Arnold Schwarzenegger. Or um, there's legendary yeah. one in for Tron Legacy. But I mean, that oh, kind yeah. of like almost fit in the, that world. It just didn't look good, like as an effect. Yeah. But like in a sense, it kind of like that's a good idea for it, I guess. It just mm. looked hilarious. But like I'm never a fan of like CGI people because it's like mm. until the technology's there, I it just always it ages mm-hmm. rapidly. Um, I watched right. like, Captain America first Avenger for the first time this year. And I mm-hmm. thought that like Chris Evans being pasted onto skinny body, man, <laughs> I thought it looked ju- like crap. Like I mm-hmm. couldn't believe how bad it looked. And it's like, that movie's not that old. Um, and like, right. I don't remember people really complaining about that too much. I'm like, this looks like junk. Um, well, Marvel does it all the time though. They, uh, de-aged Robert Downey Jr. For civil war. They made him like a teenager. And it didn't look good there either. Oh, right. They did do that. And it yeah. did look terrible. So the reason I bring it up is because, like, one, it's like, come on, Martin. You're better than that. I don't know why he would want to do that. Just cast old-ass Robert De Niro and fucking old balls Al Pacino and just have them there. They don't have to be young. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just a rumor and it'll never happen. But uh, I thought it was interesting because of the Star Wars stuff. And yeah. uh, the Star Wars thing, I think, it, like, the thing for me, it's like – 
the not that it's a CGI character, but it's because it's like a guy who's actually dead. It's like so it raises some weird questions. Like, does Peter Cushing's family get like royalties? For, yeah. yeah do, do they get paid for that? Does he get or an? It, I, or no, more importantly, does he get an IMDb credit? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, does he get that? Or um, is it because it's like the character is intellectual property? So like in cartoons, you could probably keep using that character. It's like the likeness. So it's not actually them. It's very weird. I don't know. It's a, a sticky situation. And I think it's gross. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I I don't know how you call it gross. I just think it's like, until they can pull it off well. Um, I don't really want to see it and I don't think, and it's funny that like they're going to keep doing it and people are going to expect to be paying money to see crappy special effects, but people have been doing that for decades. So, uh, it's just going to happen mm-hmm. and no matter what until like the, uh, screen actors guild says something about it. Cause they can be like, right. wait a minute. Are you getting permission for it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. to do this. And I assume that they, the family probably does get money to do this stuff because Disney doesn't want to get sued by a family member of this stuff. They don't want to get mm-hmm. brought into lawsuits. Uh, it's Star Wars. It's supposed to be like impeccable, like well, and uh, beyond ethics, and be like shiny and pretty. But I don't yeah, know. but the, they also made fucking uh, seventeen billion this year. So maybe they don't give two fucks or seven billion this year. Maybe they don't give two fucks about uh, lawsuits. It's like, uh, all right, Peter Cushing's daughter. Here's like a hundred grand. Well, sure, they could do that, and who knows what they? Know. Who knows? I mean, they don't. I mean, they can't pay him like a million dollars because mm-hmm. he doesn't exist anymore. But he, but that now they're using his imagery because they had the rights to it in a movie in nineteen seventy seven. Yes, it's, it's, it's very weird, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, well, it, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's just that's my news for today. And uh, I think I'm going to take my uh, nephew to the Star Wars movie next week so I can report back uh, and let you know uh, just how offensive or um, non or how moot this CGI Peter Cushing really is. Okay. Yeah, I don't think we'll see. I I think most people seem to be okay with that, with the the, the (laughs) Cushing. I think it's the the Fisher that people uh, kind of go oh that was it's, i think it's because it's also unnecessary story-wise like it's just yep. too much um yep. my bit of news is that Uh-oh. that blade runner 2049 trailer came out from Uh-oh. your boy denny Villeneuve. yes this is true so this is true uh i'll lay out my uh my my thesis rj Uh-oh. for blade runner 2049 is Uh-oh. that uh, the world would be better off. The film world would be better off if Harrison Ford were dead. Um, yes. So the the trailer starts off uh, with really great visuals. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like, uh, as expected, I guess, with Roger Deakin shooting the film, it looks very pretty. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that the Denny Villeneuve is really pursuing the uh, look that Ridley Scott established back like decades ago. So right. it's not a really a forward-looking film. It's it seems like mm-hmm. it's actually going to be mm-hmm. kind of looking back, uh, which is kind of typical for these sort of fan movies. Um, and then I saw Ryan Gosling, who I didn't mm-hmm. really know was going to be in this, and I just sighed. What? I'm not a Ryan Gosling fan. You know who else is in this? Your uh, buddy Jared Leto. Oh, is he is he going to play the Rutger Howard like 
uh, evil android, do you think? I, I think he's actually has a pretty small part. So I think maybe it'll be like one of the guys he, he like pops off really early on who has like five seconds of screen time. Okay. I don't know. Could be wrong. Maybe he plays mm-hmm. a young Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Ryan Gosling, I don't know. Ever since the the movie of drive coming out which i've always thought was like really overrated um mm. i thought it was just okay uh mm-hmm. and that only god forgives movie which i think is a total piece of shit uh, i'm it's not, not I'm, his fault though uh he gets to he he takes those checks and he shows up in these movies and then i don't know mm. I, so i'm not a big fan of him though i did like him in uh, the nice guys so i don't mm. know uh it seems like he's hit or miss for me but this movie seems to be kind of in that territory that uh, it's just like here's like the here's the in actor right now, and we're gonna put him in our movie because he's kind of like kind of very Harrison Fordish, which brings mm-hmm. me to Harrison Ford. Um, so I I didn't really know what role the uh, Deckard character would be playing in this film, mm-hmm. and of course we have uh, uh, the. Uh, Ryan Gosling character, he go, initially goes into a desert, and I was like super stoked because I was like, "Whoa, mm-hmm. it's the desert stuff from like the actual book from like uh, Do Androids mm-hmm. Dream of Electric Sheep?" It's like there's like a whole thing about him driving out to the desert and like finding a lizard and stuff like that. And I was like all getting excited, yep. I'm like, "Oh, great! Like they're going to go back to that stuff that we didn't get to see in the first movie." Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go to the the apartment and the piano, and then mm-hmm. you get Harrison Moore talking. <laughs> being craggy and like and he's and it keeps like every day he's alive and he performs in a movie it just like hurts me because it's like he's so terrible and like Mm. the fact that he's alive means that like these nostalgia movies can keep relying on him to be around because Harrison goddamn uh uh indiana jones kingdom of the Mm -hmm. crystal skull if he if he was dead that wouldn't have been allowed to happen anymore it would it just be not in the uh, conversation. No one would ever think about it. And the fact that there might be a five, that is really horrible. Um, I'm going to rock your world for a second. I actually don't mind that movie, but we'll talk about that another day. Because Aliens? <laughs> yep. Okay. So, yep. and then uh, Force Awakens, uh, him being in that movie just makes me go, ugh, he, he's a bad actor. Uh, mm-hmm. Was he always a bad actor? And as it turns out, as I've gone back and watched early stuff with him again, yes, he is a bad actor. He just has a lot of charisma, but his man... His delivery stinks. Yeah. And so him just being in this movie just made me go, oh, man, this just, I don't know. I don't have a lot of hope for this movie all of a sudden. And, like, mm-hmm. I think it'll be okay. It looks great, but I think it's going to be trying too hard to be, like, the first Blade Runner. Um, sure. And it's not going to be trying its own thing. Like, I'd want it to mm-hmm. be its own thing. But who knows? Yeah. We don't, all I'm going off of is a teaser that's, like, a minute and a half mm-hmm. um, and a few visuals to show off. It looks right. It looks like the original um, right. But I find that the track record of this is always disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I agree with you. Uh, it would be very nice if uh, Harrison Ford wasn't in this, and if it was just Ryan Gosling and they were just doing their own thing. That would be cool. But do that you? Would be super but do cool. you agree that the world would be better off if Harrison Ford were dead? No, because even if he was dead, they would just CGI him into this movie. So oh, it, doesn't fucking, damn it. it doesn't matter. Oh. See, this is the world we live in now. It doesn't matter if they're dead or alive. You're just going to get fucking CGI'd into there. So Shit. It, not, it not, doesn't, oh, now it's better that he's yeah. alive so they don't CGI mm-hmm. him. Yep. Oh. But uh, no, uh, so I like Ryan Gosling. Uh, and as you said, I like this Dennis Villeneuve. So uh, I'm, I'm going to watch this motherfucker for sure. But uh, yeah, Harrison, old Harrison Ford. You know, I could take him or leave him. 
Yeah. But uh, hey, I got some hot breaking news for you. <gasps> Dennis Villeneuve tapped to take over the Dune remake. Hmm. So I guess he's just going to stick with this stuff now. Remaking old sci-fi. 80s sci-fi movies. Yeah. So, um, hey, man, that might be super cool if he does, if he just, if the whole two hours is just fucking sandworms. Uh, it won't be. But it's, that would it, be cool. We'll barely get to see sandworms for a lot of it. And it'll, they'll be obfuscated yeah. through like clouds or something. Uh, and then it'll, yeah. it'll all be afterthoughts and it'll be all very mm-hmm. trying hard to be serious. And But I bet Brad Dourif will be in it again. Ooh. I feel like that's something that he could make happen. Yeah. Hmm. And Ryan Gosling for and Kyle McLaughlin's character. Yeah. Exactly. Patrick Stewart could be the same character with his mustache, Jake, or whatever. Or actually, it'll be Jake Gyllenhaal. He's he's the Kyle McLaughlin of twenty yeah. of the of the late twenty first century. Yeah, you got Big Jake in there. Um, fucking Brad Dourif could be the old king or whatever. It'll be great. Everyone will have a good time. Super. Mm-hmm. Well. Well, that's it. That's it. Well, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, After the break, we're coming back at you with some more Peter Weir talk because we are going into Hanging Rock to have a picnic in the year 
once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely dangerous. You are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. novel of mystery and suspense is now a spellbinding motion picture. Madame, something terrible has happened. Three of your young ladies and, uh, and Miss McCraw are missing on the rock. What happened? Well now, Mrs. Appleyard, uh, that's just the trouble. Nobody knows what happened. Like ripples in a pond, the ever-deepening mystery spreads, haunting the lives of all it touches. This tragedy is little more than a week old. Newspapers all over the world have headlined our morbid affair, Miss Lumley. I mean, you realize that, I suppose. I feel sorry for them kids. She was afraid I'd run away. So she shaved my head. Some of them are orphans. She painted my head with gentian white. I wake up every night in a cold sweat. Just wondering if they're still alive. Yeah, well, the way I look at it is this. The bloody cop, the bloody abo tracker, and the bloody dog cart one. Well, no one bloody kids. <laughs> we thought you had gone forever. Tell us! Yes, Irma, tell us! Tell us, Irma! The police are powerless. The townsfolk are angry. The suspicions are limitless. She hadn't been molested. Why didn't you tell us you followed the four girls? I didn't exactly follow them. In England, uh, young ladies like that wouldn't be allowed to go walking in the forest. Not alone, anyway. Miranda knows lots of things other people don't know. We shall only be gone a little while. Secrets. She knew she wouldn't come back. Miranda! Miranda! What is the secret of Hanging Rock? And who will it claim next? And we're back and talking Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975, directed by Peter Weir, spine number 29 in that Criterion collection. On St. Valentine's Day 1900, at the Apple Yard College in Victoria, Australia, three students and a teacher up and disappeared at Hanging Rock, a rock formation in the Australian wild, uh, all while the, a group from the school has gone on a picnic. The police investigate, question a couple of boys who saw them, uh, one of the girls who went up with them, 
and hysterically went running down before they disappeared has no idea what happened to them. No one seems to know. Uh, of the two boys who saw the girls go up, one of them, Michael, becomes interested in the case and goes up to Hang Rock uh, himself to look for them. There, he has his own strange hallucinogenic experiences, finding scra- uh, scrapes of lace. Um, one of his other friends comes along, Albert, and uh, they find one of the girls who went missing named Irma. But of course, sh- we learn she has no memory whatsoever of what happened to her or the other girls. Um there's another girl from the school named Sarah, uh, who was a former roommate with Miranda, sort of the lead girl of the uh, missing women or girls. Uh, and she is just having a horrible time at the school, being an orphan whose funding at the school is tenuous and resulting in the madam of the school sing- singling her out for correction. We had to follow her story of institutional bullying and torture, all leading to one of those Peter Weir plot points uh, of suicide that we can see in uh, Dead Poet Society and the movie Fearless as well. Um, and the movie kind of comes to a close and there are no answers to be had. Um, mm. This movie really is not at all about plot or story. Um, it's more, it's really about atmosphere um, more so than any other movie that we've watched, I think up to this point. So, I mean, it's like one thing to talk, you you could read the back of the package of the movie and read it mm-hmm. and know what it's kind of about and be like that sounds really like I know what to expect of it and I mean it literally is just that um, it's a story about uh, four people that just up and disappear one day and people trying to find out what happened to them uh, try to go about their days afterwards um, that's kind of the thing so RJ what did you think of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Well, Jerry, I'm going to lay it down for you real, real thick here for a second. Oh, right. So as I was the Peter Weir expert this week, I did even more research and I read the essay that accompanied the package. Mm-hmm. However, also uh, this uh, nice criterion set that you had also had a novel by uh, Joan Lindsay, uh, which I think the book is or the movie is uh, pretty or based on like pretty, pretty good. Like it's pretty close, it's I for, guess. Yeah, it's for pretty uh uh, true to the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't read the book, but I did read the first page. Uh, and before the first page, there is a really nice like little epitaph here that I thought completely sums up the way I view this movie. So I'm just going to read this for you. I don't know if you read this or not, but I'm going to lay it out for you. Uh, okay, here it is. Whether Picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, uh, my readers must decide for themselves. As the fateful picnic took place in the year 1900 and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead, it hardly seems important. And the way I view this movie is that it hardly seems important. Oh, Uh, oh, take that, Peter Weir. Right in Um, the bread basket. So uh, I didn't really care for this movie. Uh, As I watched a bunch of Peter Weir movies this week, I watched this one and I was like, it's all right it's not it's not as good as he can be um and so the reason i didn't like this movie though jared okay is not because it's like boring like uh you i think people would assume is the reason i don't like it i actually think the story is really cool like it's a really interesting thing that happened and i think the way that he handles it is very cool like the idea that there's this object or area that's like a conduit of something like a portal, something metaphysical. I think that's all really neat. I just don't think Peter Weir does anything interesting with it. 
um, I don't know, man. Like, I feel like he he just doesn't do anything that stands out. Like, the, it's like the story is cool. Uh, the things he shows is cool, but nothing stands out for me, man. Okay. I don't I don't know. Maybe I missed it. As you said, it's all this is like the most atmospheric, moody kind of movie, and maybe I just wasn't in the right mood, baby. Mm, I don't know. Like, I I mean, I don't think that is necessarily why you don't like the movie. So, okay, I'll go through my positives with the movie, which sure. all kind of come in the first 45 minutes of it. Um, right. So it opens up with this, like, really great enigmatic Blair Witch Project-style cold open statement of intent. Absolutely. Uh, it tells you exactly what the movie's going to be. Like, um, mm-hmm. it's just like, this is what's going to happen. And it, it sets up dread immediately because you're like, oh my God, like something's going to happen and these girls are going to be just gone and they're never going to be seen again. And yep. like, you just don't know. And like, it tells you this, like, and now you're, and then the movie starts and um, you get this like ominous soundtrack over sublime nature. And mm-hmm. there's these just a mu- a beautiful shots of like the hanging rock site uh, and like the beautiful color that you can only get in Australia. Um, and just like this weird space and like the music just plays the Zamfir score, uh, which mm-hmm. I actually like quite a bit just plays right. over it. You get that really great like uh, calligraphic title card of just like mm-hmm. picnic over hang rock over the shot. Um, it's like, it looks amazing. And it's like, yeah, like this movie's like going to be wonderful. It's going to be just about like uh, the absurdity of like, uh, like civilization trying to put itself into like nature, which doesn't give mm-hmm. a shit about civilization at all. It's completely indifferent. Um and then we get sort of, uh, we get pulled back from there. And then we get into the scene with just like the girls kind of getting ready for like their day of going on this picnic, but it's probably their day-to-day life of getting prepared. So you get like the mannered floral textures, you get mm-hmm. like that properly Victorian repressed vibe, which actually ties in to kind of like the master and commander sensibility of like, kind of like this, like that 19th century, um, like men trying to men man uh in the general sense trying to like make a statement about the world they're in and re- be refined and like what is a proper right. what is a proper individual so like, there's like sort of mm-hmm. that thing that i think peter weir is kind of throwing back onto or at least that's something that he gets uh kind of uh i'll uh, be the word i'm looking for he's fallen back onto it i guess in sure. like later on years and later years later but anyway so like mm. i thought like that stuff was really like it's beautifully shot it's like soft focus um i think it's like one mm-hmm. somebody wrote an essay about it mentioning like something about like it's almost got like a soft core like vibe to it because like all these like yeah. young young women like tying each other up and like looking longingly at mm. one another in mirrors and applying their uh makeup and like getting ready for the day um and then there's like the i think before they get sent out by the the i think i referred to as a madam but uh, i guess like the mist uh the head mistress or whatever it's called uh she's like warning them about venomous snakes and poisonous ants and that like you will be allowed to take off your gloves when you're there but that's it like Mm -hmm. you have to be wearing these like ridiculous like outfits while you're like out in the mountains which is like comical um i think for like you or i imagining going out to like the rocky mountains uh dressed like to the nines with your uh tuxedo or something like that like you just don't you dress appropriately but in like this sort of like colonial narrative um which again kind of goes back to like something like in the franklin expedition or like master and commander you're always wearing your uniform like you don't Mm -hmm. like the idea that you would dress appropriately for an area that would be like being like lowering yourself um, so like mm-hmm. that, th- those are all things that I really respond 
strongly to in the beginning of this movie. Right. Um, and then like you get the scope of the rock, like of the of the, of hanging rock, and mm-hmm. um, you get this like these like uh, the the one teacher who disappears, uh, Miss McCraw, and like her like laying out like how this is like a late like this new formation, the rock coming out of the ground, and mm-hmm. uh, and how it's like this is like only like a million years old in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter, and like you just get mm-hmm. this like sense of like. Yeah, uh, of time and uh, like how civilization playing out against this backdrop of nature, it all is just like meaningless. Um, you get the insects at work, which is like always like uh, a thing in these Peter Weir Australian movies, like in Gallipoli, um, or like I think about like in uh, Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout, like just insects and bugs just eating things and like crawling right. all over the place. Um, and then you get the spooky rocks. You get the mm-hmm. uh, like when when the girls uh, that they they go up the the rock face and then they start walking through the the uh, the between the rocks and the crevices and stuff like that and it's like really off putting and like you're like oh no what's going to happen like because you know that they're going to disappear still you know it's all mm-hmm. like moving toward this and then um, there's the one shot where like they're I think it's like right after they've been laying around and then they start taking off their boots. And mm-hmm. like their shoes, and they start walking around barefoot, which is like just like what's going on? <laughs> like what are they doing? Yeah. They're taking off their boots, and then there's like the one shot of them just like walking through a crevice, and they just disappear. And this is just this idea for me of people walking off into nothingness is just like probably my worst fear. Like just this idea that like one minute you could mm. be out there somebody with somebody, and they're like, yeah, I'll be right back in a second, and they turn around the corner, and then they just completely disappear off the face of the planet. That's just like for me is like one of the worst feelings I could imagine, like a loved one or something that's, like, yeah. Like there's, that's like, good to know. Now I know how to really torment you. Yeah. How to mess with me. <laughs> yeah. I'll just start plucking people out of your life when you uh, least expect it. Yeah. Um, no, like this is like kind of like a side thing, but I remember like, like a few years ago, I, I was like up late at night at like two in the morning and I was on my laptop and I was looking up like websites that had like unexplained disappearances listed on it and just like reading mm-hmm. these stories about it. And it's just like chilling because it's this idea that like a person could be like just there one minute and then just completely gone and you, no one knows what happened mm-hmm. to them. And like you just, your mind starts filling in the gaps. And to me, that's just like, I don't know, terrifying. Um, baby, you come to me because you know I'm the conspiracy theory expert. I'll talk to you about aliens, motherfucking disappearances. That's my bread and butter, man. Yeah. Um, so the first 45 minutes of this movie, I think, are like really extraordinary. I think they're yeah, amazing. I- and then they go back to the school, and then there's something that happens in this movie, and then it kind of gets into like I guess you'd call the procedural part, mm-hmm. and that's when it just like goes on. And it never seems right. to really get back to any of the mystery. And like, it's not like I want resolution. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't care what happened to them. I think the power of the movie is obviously in not knowing. But yeah, I, I, think, I think that all the pieces are there to have made just a better movie. Um, right? Yeah. No, I, I think yeah. it's like, yeah, like, I, I, I love that first 45 minutes. I think they're amazing. But then there's just something that it just kind of goes awry. And I couldn't like, I mm-hmm. just, it just feels like the story just isn't that interesting from that point forward. Um, yeah. And even like, um, like there's like the thing where like the police officers questioning the boys and like, well, and there's like this like idea that like, well, maybe these girls have been like taken and raped and killed or whatever. Right. But I never even get that sense that, that that was ever really seriously pursued or some like Aborigines came along and killed them. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, you never get that sense. It seems like there's no real like theory to it. There's no, um, 
I don't know. It doesn't seem ex- ex- really interested in anything. Right. That's exactly how I feel, man. Like, it's like I was saying, I really like the idea and the, and the story. Like, I think it's super interesting and all that. And, like, the first 40 minutes is really good. It's just it completely drops off then. And, like, I don't uh, – when I re- read the essay, uh, they were talking about how a common criticism is that uh, it's an unresolved ending. And yeah. I agree with you. Like, I don't – I honestly, like, that didn't bother me at all. Like, sometimes I think being vague like that – works better for movies like look at inception man and people still talk about that ending i know i know you're cringing but i'm just using that as an example here my point is that i don't i don't think the unresolved ending is that's uh, not the problem that's not not the problem it's it's exactly like what i was trying to say and like what you also said was this should be really good it's got all the right elements everything's there but it's just he doesn't pull it together like there's nothing that stands out in this movie for some reason i don't know if it was too early in peter weir's career or he just like there's something with the material that you just couldn't crack or something it's all there it's just it doesn't come together which is too bad because i think the story's super cool yeah, no, it, it's a great story. Like, or the idea for yeah. the story is like really good, and like the the idea that the um, it's like kind of uh, like when it was written in the '67, um, it was kind of presented as like a true story, maybe. Um, but and then not like, really. Yeah, but it's like it's funny when you read about it. So people refer to it as like a historical drama, which I mean, I, I guess is just a fancy way of maybe saying period piece. But like this idea that well, maybe it was based on a true story, which is like funny to think of like it's like well no either we there'd be documentation if it happened one way or another we would know there's no vagueness to it it's like no we would find right. out if like four people just vanished in 1900 there'd be like websites about it. like or like mm-hmm. even in the 70s there'd be like news articles about this but there ah. isn't so it's like so that's not that's neither here nor there but um mm-hmm. yeah i don't know but like, and as far as like peter weir um actually i did i did my little bit of reading cuz i was mm-hmm. kind of curious about him cuz we will be talking about peter weir again and uh, that'll be with the last wave which i think is a, uh, yeah a, which is actually i think a, a much better movie um is that a nautical adventure as well no it's a contemporary australian tale of a man who, no you'll like it <laughs> okay I, I, I think you'll dig it because uh, like, okay. like as you were talking about earlier uh in this episode uh peter mm-hmm. weir is very inconsistent um because yes. like yes. for my experience with him i mean there's like I've seen like almost everything of his except for like a handful of things, and there's like movies I I just will never watch, like the movie Green Card. I'll never watch Green mm-hmm. Card in my life. Um, Dead Poet Society is like one of like those movies I absolutely hate. I think it's oh really yeah. What are you a monster? No, it's oh it's a it's it's garbage. That movie sucks. Oh, um, that's too bad, Jer. Yeah. No, that movie's really terrible but Truman Show amazing Master and Commander amazing yeah um, and even like he's like again hey bring him back Harrison Ford for a moment the Uh-oh. movie the movie Witness and Mosquito Coast oh not, yeah, yeah not so great well he's like a he's very much like in the 50-50 club mm-hmm. um, in his like most recent movie uh, that he made The Way Back just yep. fine like kind of in that Gallipoli yeah, I heard that was camp okay. for me yeah it's very yep. like just okay um, I think I think what it is with him is he made two all-time bangers with Truman Show and uh, Master and Commander, and then he's got a lot of mediocre stuff, like really in the middle, mm-hmm. and then he's got a few things that are at the bottom of the barrel. Like, if I didn't like Year of Living Dangerously, I don't think he would like it either. 
Yeah. Or uh, those movies that you just talked about that you didn't like, I probably won't like those as well. Mm-hmm. But um, Dead Poets I liked. I haven't seen it in like 10 years, but I remember liking it. Yeah, I just think that movie, like, it's just, I don't know. It sets up this, like, it's been so long since I watched it, but I remember, like, it just sets up this position where, like, you can't disagree with it. Like, it's so comical mm-hmm. and, like, oh, someone has to kill themselves to get the point across and, like, how great you. Robin Williams is. It's so cheap. Like, it's just... I got the, you. Like, the, it's the screenplay more than anything. Um, right. And it's got old uh, fil- filthy Seymour Hoffman in there, young filthy. Oh, I like... I miss him. Yeah. Um, so, I was reading about Peter Weir because I was kind of curious about um, the Australian New Wave that came about yes. in the 70s. Because um, yes, yes. so, I mean, it's actually interesting because uh, Australia being a fellow Commonwealth uh, mm-hmm. country, I was kind of interested to see like how much the Australian film industry kind of reflected Canada's. And there are some definite like similarities because I guess like basically... How so? Um, okay, so uh, there was no Australian film industry uh, to speak of until like the seven, until the government stepped in to essentially create one. Because up until that point, there was a few, like, silent films that had gotten made. But, I mean, like, every other part of the world, it was dominated by America's Hollywood machine. Where it was just, like, everyone was watching American Hollywood movies. Because they, they were able to, like, make get the resources together to make movies. Because it's really okay. expensive to make movies, as you might have heard. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, then, maybe. yeah. Um, so, the only force on earth that I, I guess that like could really compete with these Hollywood American films would be mm-hmm. when governments would actually uh, get their resources together and thus like start creating funding and projects. So in Australia, you got the Commonwealth filming unit, which uh, Peter Weir, who had just been working in television at the time, he jumped mm-hmm. to and he began making films there. Um, and it's weird because there's, it's uh, reflected in like Canadian history too. And like how, both these Commonwealth countries, they kind of want to, uh, as the term my uh, art history professor would call is cut the apron strings. This idea of, like, you want to mm. break a link that you have to your home country. So, like, uh, in the mm. sense of, like, in Britain, like, there's, like, a predominant view of, like, how paintings should be made. And so Canada's like, well, we have to make a unique, um, uh, I, I visually, ideologically interesting, wholly original form of painting and then so you start having these like governments start getting funding together to give money to the artists in those countries to come up with this like uh look of what you want be it film or any sort of form of art but what winds up happening is the stuff that people respond to is the stuff that kind of just looks like what your original country was making in the first place or like america because i mean right. what, what what's your frame of reference going to be it's going to be the things that you've seen all along and until you make it your own i don't know you can take like the visual vocabulary that you've seen in other movies and then apply it to something that is in your own country so in like these australian movies they have the outback so the movies right. start really taking full advantage of the fact that they're in the outback um i'll get your outback yeah. how's that sound <laughs> Sorry, no. Continue. <laughs> I'm, ac- I'm actually. Uh, I, I do enjoy this. I just. Uh, yeah. You, you can't. You can't miss an opportunity like that to I, drop one of those. I know, and you can't help yourself. No. Nope. <laughs> um, nope. So yeah, at this period of time, you got like kind of uh, every director in the world like is influenced by your like the American, British, European art house director types. So like your Bergmans, your Kurosawas, they're like all being watched by directors at the exact same time. Uh, as they're mm-hmm. getting expanded out. So like Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and Coppola in America. Um, but then you also were in 
Germany, you get the German new wave. There's a like Czechoslovakian new wave. There's a Canadian new wave, and they're yeah. all and they're all responding to the wider dispersal of these art house films of like Bergman, Kurosawa, which also, funnily enough, are all films that are going to be being, being distributed by Janus Films. Uh, Can I just interrupt for a second? Yeah. Is Canadian New Wave, like, would that be FUBAR? Is that, like, the uh, one that really set it off? Uh, a couple years earlier than that. Okay, let, um, let's just say it's FUBAR. And okay. then, okay, sorry, keep, keep going. <laughs> uh, so you have, like, your, I don't know, your David Cronenberg would obviously be a person that would fit into that. But, I mean, right. in Canada, our their scheme here was, like, we, ha- we always had, like, the National Film Board, which had its own very specific uh, mode, but then you also yep. got the Canadian uh, tax credit scheme, which was bringing in American investors and, pro- mm-hmm. and getting their productions made in Canada, which also fostered these uh, Canadian directors' careers. Um, Correct. So yeah, and this is all happening simultaneously, like in the same like decade, kind of like that post sixties uh, like student uprising, uh, the, the exposure of art house films in these countries. Everyone's responding to like Kubrick to. Um, and suddenly they're like, oh, we're all making these unique films, unique to our own country. But they're all kind of like, I mean, Peter, like, how, if you, how can you look at like Picnic and Hanging Rock and not think of like European filmmaking, right? Like it looks, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like very much like it's like other than it's set in Australia, um, like it, but it's still being made like by a guy who's been watching European art films, which yeah. isn't a bad thing um, or anything like that. It's just like it's what it is, and. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So, and it's funny too, is because like all these directors in all these European countries, Australia, Canada, um, they all wind up inevitably working for Hollywood eventually. Because you get Peter Weir working in America, you get uh, yep. Vim Vendors, uh, Milos Forman, Cronenberg. They they all wind Dennis up. Dennis Villeneuve. Denny. Uh, Denny Villeneuve. Later. Yep. See, he gets he gets sucked in because they give you the opportunities to make movies, uh, and they give you lots of money, and you can start making stuff bigger and brighter um and they win at the end of the day it's the uh, hegemonic structure rj well what are you gonna do man it's like you can't fight like city that, hall it's like that simpsons when uh crusty's like licensing out all his stuff and he's like they did, emptied a dump truck of money on my lawn what was i supposed to do yeah <laughs> i get it man i would um, do it too i'd yeah. like face off too if uh, the right money came along right um, so I guess as far as uh, Picnic and Hanging Rock goes, uh, it belongs yep. to the, I guess what's called the AFC genre, which is the Australian Film Commission. Because um, mm-hmm. basically what they specialized in in this period of time was making period pieces about and for Australians. Because um, they wanted to review, mm-hmm. like, they wanted to kind of play on their cultural maturity. They wanted to make a statement about being Australian. Um, yeah. Which like... Um, there's uh, the one Canadian art history class I took as a student that like, it's like the exact reading this book. I could like guess exactly where this was going. Cause I was like, Oh, right. And then this yeah. just happens. And cause then you get the critics who are responding to this and saying, yes, this is good Canadian or this is good Canadian filmmaking or uh, painting and stuff like that. And it's like, Oh no, but it's because it looks like something that everyone recognizes already, but they don't know it. They just think, no, this is Canadian because it looks a little bit different. Like the colors are a little bit different, but they're just drawing influences from something else. But it's not a bad thing. It's just kind of something that like to point out, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Because like in Canada, we have like this like Canadian-ness that like uh, gets pushed for like the sort of films that get made. Things like tell, be it like with the CBC and stuff like that. We have like 
uh, these all all the Canadian films that can get made, they have to have a certain amount of Canadian content to it because that somehow means it's more right. relevant to Canadians, which is just mm-hmm. stupid. And it always has been um, this idea of like being like protectionist about like your cultural identity. Um, and like, I mean, the best directors have obviously been the ones that have been able to circumvent that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's like it's a struggle, like because like I've looked at these grants before for applying for stuff, and it's like you have to have such and such thing, you have to be appealing to certain things, and um, I don't know, it's more trouble than it's worth. Well, you don't got the drive and the mm-hmm. and the determination that I might have. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, yeah, I know. I think the way CBC works is that sixty or seventy percent of all content has to be Canadian. Whatever like, that uh, means. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. so it has to be like made in Canada by Canadians and like p- supply or like put out to Canadians. But I think the Australian thing too is like if your movie has. Uh, like historical relevance for Australia, like their government pays for it. Yes. And then there's the far right where in China you can only make movies with like historical relevance. So it's a weird world out there, Jarrett. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the trade off though when you're working with like a government. Cause actually, I think one of the, like, he didn't go into it too much, but in one of the documentaries when we were watching Robocop, uh, Paul Verhoeven made some comment about like how uh, he could make any movie he wanted when the right wing government was in. And so yeah. he was like making like movies like Soldier of Orange and stuff like that, um, The Fourth Man, and he didn't start running into mm-hmm. problems uh, until like the left wing government got in, and then suddenly his films became objectionable. And it's always like you never know what well, who's going to find your movie like objectionable. Like it could be one day it could be the right wing government, one day it could be the left wing mm-hmm. government. It all depends on what you're showing and what they view as ex- uh, socially acceptable. And then your movies mm-hmm. don't get any, get funded anymore. And then mm-hmm. again, once again, you jump ship and you go to America and then you got to make American movies for Americans and the rest and of the world it. by extension. Yeah. Well, what are you supposed to do? Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, man. Movies yeah. are weird. Um, one thing I'll mention here too was, uh, the, I read a book, uh, or I guess like the relevant chapters anyway. You never read a book. The the films of Peter Weir (laughs) by uh, Jonathan Rayner. Uh, and he mentions, uh, how Picnic at Hanging Rock, it really, uh, typifies a lot of Peter Weir's kind of visual motifs, which I'll mention here. Uh, the amalgamation of the normal and abnormal, uh, collisions between society and individuals, and between societies and external forces, visual hallmarks of bleached pale lighting, soft focus nostalgia haze, and meticulous art direction, and powerful usage of soundtrack and music, reinforcing or undermining the image with conspicuous or incongruous sound. Mm. Uh, I don't know half of the things you said, mm-hmm. but uh, the sound and music, uh, There, I have two notes. This is the second movie in a row, consecutive movie, movies to start off with pan flute, uh, so that is fun. And as I was watching all these Peter Weir movies, you know what he does a lot? What? He'll have a scene and then the music will be like some sort of synth pop in the background where it's like boop, 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 doo, boop, doo, Oh, in Gallipoli, that was really terrible. Yeah, it's really bad in Gallipoli or uh, Gallopy, uh, whatever that movie is called. Gallipoli. Uh, yeah, it's really bad in that one. Uh, he does it again in this one and he does it in The Year of Living Dangerously. And I don't get it. It's like, what? It's like, because in uh, Gallipoli, it's like the guys are running or something, and it's like, very, very like, much of its time. Yeah, you're just like, why is that music in there? That's very bizarre. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, I noticed that in this too, and I was like, I guess that's just his thing. Like he just loves synth pop. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, I also I watched the uh, the short film of his that's on the Criterion Ooh. as well, Holmesdale. Um, What's that about? Uh, well, it's actually got a really good write up that's much better than the actual movie is. Um, yeah. Several people gather at the Holmesdale Hunting Lodge, including butcher rock singer Mr. Kevin, war veteran Mr. Vaughn, and an octogenarian Mr. Levy. All are tormented by Holmesdale staff and forced to participate in a series of games about death and murder in which the true character of the guests starts to emerge. Um, on paper, to me, that sounds, sounds awesome. awesome, but boy, is it yeah. not interesting at all. Like, I couldn't, I didn't uh. even finish it. I just kind of was like, enough's enough. Um, I'm actually just looking over at Peter Weir's filmography right now. The Cars That Ate Paris, mm-hmm. that's uh, not bad. But uh, the one, actually, because I watched back in October uh, during uh, our ghouling, was The Plumber. Creeptober? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. That was one of your uh, top five of the yeah, month. Yeah, and I love The Plumber. I thought The Plumber was fantastic. Yep. Um, and it's yep. it's actually got a story, <laughs> and it's actually got things that happen in it and i don't care and it doesn't really have much of a resolution but mm-hmm. it, it still liked it so that idea that people single out that the reason they don't like this movie is because it has a lack of resolution is no nah, that's cool I, 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 don't, I don't buy it either i think it's um i think it's for people who need to find a reason that they don't like it mm-hmm. but like a reason that they can cling on to that other people also acknowledge so it's like it's like well i don't know why i don't like this i it must be the ending or something like that that's what other people say yeah uh, so, Maybe you're just an asshole. I don't know. So when you were reading the essay um, yes. on this, what did you think of like this whole angle about like repressed sexuality and adolescent oh. sexuality and sexuality, uh, sexuality? What I did was you think of this? Up. Uh, I think that's totally fucking bogus. Uh, not just in the movie, but in fucking practice alone. Um, it's, uh, it's horseshit. Uh, so I can talk to, I can speak to this. Because I have a degree in psychology. And <laughs> that makes me a world authority on sexuality. Um, no, uh, so yeah, I read that. And I, I literally, I was by myself. And I, re- I, went, I made this sound like, <laughs> like, it's like, come on. It's like, well, the, the volcano eruption, that's like an erection. And uh, venomous snakes, <laughs> those are like men with Phallus. their boners. Yeah. yeah, they're like phallic objects. And women, they, uh, they're they fancy and they do this. And it's like, come on, man. It's like, you're, I think you're really reaching for those fucking things. And it's, like the um, essay, it kept bringing up Freud. Yeah. And I was like, well, it's the, like, I okay. Think, the, I mean, so to be fair, that That's author sp- specifically states that they're going to look at it uh, through a Freudian um, perspective. And I mean, you can find out, you find all sorts of stuff through a Freudian perspective. Well, um, but well, yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a, on the, uh, on the criterion of it, there's a special feature of talking to like, I think it's an introduction by like a Australian film critic, just talking about how important this movie is to Australian film history. It's like the greatest Australian film mm-hmm. of all time, which is like no. nuts. I'm like, dude, your, your country created the road warrior. Uh, yeah. so give George Miller some goddamn credit. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, I don't know, but th- again, like this is a funny thing too, is like going, uh, with the, like that Canadian, uh, tax credit thing, which was like, all about making exploitation movies. Australia right. also has a history with making um, its own exploitation films, which is uh, captured very well in the documentary Not Quite Hollywood. Just talking about how there's like there's this strain of like high minded Australian cinema, 
which is kind of more along the stuff along this line of stuff that Criterion would probably release, I guess. But then there's mm-hmm. like the the crazy ridiculous movies um, that in Canada did the exact same thing because it was all about uh, trying to make an actual film industry, which relies on people actually going to see your movies and not just being uh, respectful and going to your movies about I don't know doilies and uh, mm-hmm. repressed sexuality allegedly. But yeah, so this guy though he was just going on in this like introduction of the movie about like the sexuality and I'm like is this another just like old white man perving on teenage girls yep 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 that's and, exactly what it is yeah and so there's so that started the I think the uh, trajectory of these people like that's the only yep. way people talk about this movie and they, they say that it like it's there like it's a matter of fact but I never got that at all from watching this um, like mm, yeah yeah I mean I laid it out kind of when I was talking about the stuff I liked about it um, and just like, yeah, no, it's about like setting up this, this idea of like civilization and like how people like kind of distort their bodies and like, conf- like they just mm-hmm. like, they get, I don't know, they're, uh, it's all silly and mannered when you compare it to like, I don't know, the like strange, unknowable, sublime nature of the world. Like, it's just like people are silly at the end of the day and people yeah. talking about like fetishizing and burgeoning sexual curiosity. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Very silly, Jared. Um, I think like Freud and stuff like that. Yeah. Like dude was a fucking sex pervert. Like that's what he was doing. I get it. His like people, like people find like Freud is synonymous with like psychology. So you make a link to that, but like what you were saying is you can find like overt sexuality and like, or like subtextual sexuality in anything. Like we were talking about earlier, Star Wars, it's like, ooh, Darth Vader has a raspy, uh, raspy voice. It must be like his oral fixation because he never got over it. And uh, I hate it. Mm-hmm. I hate it, Jarrett. I hate it. Have you actually, I don't know if you've actually gone through your notes or like said what you've liked about this film. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, I, I, I like you very much like the first 40 minutes. Um, and then as I said earlier, I like the idea of like a conduit of things like an area or object, like being some sort of metaphysical thing that like has more to it. Like I, I like the idea of hanging rock being like something like that. Sure. Super cool. Um, I liked that their search party had noisemakers because that's something that I never see. Search parties never have noisemakers. And it's like, yeah, of course. Why not? Um, Because then they can hear you. But I guess you can't hear them. A dilemma, apparently. Uh, I liked a line in this where it said, people don't just disappear, uh, not without good reason. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. And then uh, one line I had that I actually underlined was that the police chief called the underpants drawers. So I thought that was um, of note, apparently, and I wrote it down in my book. So, no, I don't know. Like like I was saying, I like the idea of this movie. I like the story a lot. Yeah. And there are certain elements that were really nice, but just on the whole, to be honest, I just... I don't think much of this movie. I'm never going to watch this fucking thing again, ever. So yeah. you take that as it is. I yeah. will. <laughs> you. Yeah, it's yeah. A, yeah, I don't know. I It's one of those movies, too, that, like, I... I'm trying to remember how I first came across the movie. Like, I think I just I read the description of it, and like, first of mm-hmm. all, at that point, I knew who Peter Weir was because he directed Truman Show, which I thought was just like one of the best things the I'd best. ever seen. Um, the best. 
And then like I read the description of that movie. And I was like, whoa, this sounds incredible. I cannot wait to watch it. And it was always like super expensive and an old bare bones DVD that didn't look very good. Um, and then finally it came. I think I downloaded it actually. And I watched it at that time. And I wasn't like, mm-hmm. I thought I was like, oh, I remember Chanel was watching it with me at that point, And she was kind of like, this is kind of going on, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not really going anywhere. And then. Uh, so watching it this time on Blu-ray, I was like, uh, the, again, the first 45 minutes, they sucked me right in. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is so much better now that I can finally watch it in uh, high def. And then it just yep. kind of peters out. Um, there's the, does nothing. The, there is the really good scene with, like, the girl who is found again. Um and, oh yeah, and yep. like her, like in the red dress, like going into the room to say yep. bye to everybody, and they all attack her because they want to know what mm. happened and stuff like that. Really good scene, but like I don't know, like how you like the, the connect tissue there. And I mean, yeah, there's like there's all these scenes in that like we've kind of buried the second half of this movie, honestly. Yeah. Like there's like the uh, the Sarah girl, like I don't know, you don't really get the build up, the fact that like she's had it so bad that she would kill herself. Yeah. Um. He tries to allude to that. Yeah, but like he tries, yeah. but it doesn't really land. Mm-hmm. There's, but again, it's like suicide and cry. Yeah, Master and Commander's got suicide in it too. Yeah, that guy gets a fucking cannonball and, and just goes down to the bottom to like alleviate it, and then he and he breaks the curse. And yep. yeah, it's suicide. Ah, it's so weird. Now that I think about, it, I forgot about that one too. Hmm. Um, Maybe he's a big fan of Rogue One. Yeah. <laughs> Or Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Um, yeah. And then the movie, the, what did you think of that voiceover narration at the very end that like lays out that Mrs. Appleby died, was found dead at the base um, of Hanging Rock? It's, <laughs> I thought that was funny, but I also had a note where uh, the ADR in this movie was like on fleek, as the kids would say, because there's a scene where there's like the girl who was there, the bigger lady. Um, who like doesn't remember stuff and by the way like she didn't get as hard of a time she was giving that one girl a really hard time but it's like man you were there too so why are you fucking anyways they like ADR her voice like you can it's very clear you can tell like her lips aren't moving and then they're moving out of sync but the audio sounds really good so I don't know if that's Criterion's transfer or what but yeah they do some weird playing around with the uh, the voiceovers and the ADRs and those things mm. but uh yeah i like that scene where the girl comes into the dance hall uh there's a really there's a really great moment where it cuts back to the teacher who's playing piano and she's kind of like quivering behind her chair uh, i think that's awesome like it, it and just like it's like two seconds and it totally just uh completely makes you feel for her like just total fear and like panic uh that's wicked and then another scene i really like is when um the, the the bigger girl who was there with them like runs away and you get this like weird aerial drone shot and it's yeah. like kind of like moving around and again it like it really instills a sense of like panic I guess um so that was really good too yeah. I like that yeah um, I don't know yeah no, there's like these good things about it like I yeah. just I just think that it just never comes together the, yeah there's not much happening enough to like keep your keep your attention i guess because i found that like i just kind of zoned out for a bit during it i was kind of like oh it's still going (laughs) and it's like Mm -hmm. why why is this scene here i don't know (laughs) nobody knows jerry nobody knows nobody Um, knows but that brings us to who hates this movie a few people i would imagine yeah i can imagine this movie might uh 
anger some people or frustrates them. Um, oh. Like Evanston Dad, uh, he gave mm-hmm. this half a star. Ugh, an endless and interminable movie about a batch of oppressed schoolgirls who go missing during a picnic at the eponymous rock formation. There seem to be plenty of viewers armed with psychobabble to defend this film's deeper meaning, its undertones of sexuality, power, repression, etc., 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 blah, 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 whatever. I'm sure Peter Weir knew what point he was trying to make, but this movie is monotonous, droning bore, and I was left with no incentive to make sense of it. On top of all of it, it's also unforgivably pretentious, proof that Weir is better off sticking to the mainstream fare that has made him famous, Dead Poet mm-hmm. Society, Witness, Master and Commander, and leave the art film to others. Grade F. That guy didn't even fucking mention the Truman Show. What an asshole. What a dick. <laughs> Half a star from Maddie Stanfield. I've seen Peter Weir's acclaimed classic three times, two of them in a cinema. There is a haunting beauty here. Russell Boyd's cinematography is stunning. The problem I encountered during all three viewings, Zamfir's instrument and musical score made my skin crawl, and not in an intended way. I despise the music in this film so much, it is impossible for me to enjoy it, no matter how hard I try. Well, it wasn't that distracting. I think the rest of the movie itself is a lot more of a distraction than the music. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Siegfried Storstrand... He gave this uh, one and a half star and he watched it thinking it was an Australian horror film. I don't know if there was something I was supposed to get, but I didn't get it. I got a kind of giallo feeling from this, which is something I do not enjoy at all. I'm not sure if that means like giallo movies or that feeling. I uh, I would say the feeling. Let's just stick with that. Um, Yeah. Little to no narrative structure, overly reliant on ambience alone. Were it not for the music, I probably would have rated it even lower. So we have another hot take on the music. One person couldn't stand it. The other person is only rating it uh, one and a half because of the music. Movies hmm. like this do nothing for me. Nothing at all. This is the polar opposite of what I look for in a movie. It makes me a little pissed as well because I was really looking forward to this. Thanks, man. Like, that's such a fucking, like, weird thing to say. Like, I know I've said that where it's like, yeah, it's not for me. But it's like, this had nothing I was looking for. It's like, what are you looking for then, man? Like, I only watched this because I had to. <laughs> so it's like, what are you looking for that, like, brought you to this movie and it didn't have it? I don't know. Weird. Weird. Time will tell. Time will tell. Well, I think that's that. I think so. Mattress Man. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, after the break, uh, you're going to find us at the bottom of the greenhouse because we've killed ourselves. Peter Weir movies. 
Master and Commander, though, that is the shit. I, yeah, I knew you'd like it. Yeah, man. And see, again, it's just, you gotta read the terror, dude. I know you'd love it. We, you just gotta get over your weird thing about not being able to read. I know. It's a, it's a struggle, day in, day out. Audiobook it. Uh, I'll wait till the AMC movie comes along. Ah, man, that won't be as good as the book. No, but it'll be convenient for me. Damn it. I have, two, right. I have two copies of it. I have a first printing and a soft cover. Neither have ever been read. So there's no excuse. Just read, the, read the read the trade. I have to buy the trade now of it. Or the paper or the soft cover paperback. Read that. Nah, Just do it, dude. How are you ever going to make your uh, HMS uh, graphic novel, Franklin graphic novel, if you don't read it? Hmm. I guess I'm not. Well... I guess you can just be a diaper baby your whole life if that's what you want to do. <laughs> you, you diaper baby. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you can email us at criterioncreeps at gmail.com. We've got a Facebook page. We're on Instagram. Mm-hmm. We're on the Letterboxd. I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. We're on SoundCloud.com. Uh, Stitcher, iTunes, rate, share, follow, listen. Listens feedback good. feedback yeah it's been a mm-hmm. while kids get that feedback out oh, it's the holidays uh you have lots of time on your hands i'm sure with your mm-hmm. i don't know in-laws and shit get those letters in get those emails yep. in those messages let us know how great yep. we are how horrible we are we'll take it one way or another it's attention mm-hmm. we're starved for it next week on criterion creeps we're hitting Ooh. that spine number 30 we are Dang. we're going to go kill some children in Germany in the 1930s because we're going to oh. be watching Fritz Lang's M from 1931. And RJ, I understand that you've not seen this movie before. I've never seen it. I've always wanted to, but I haven't. So I'm pretty excited, man. Well, I think it's going to help turn this ship around. Fucking better. I've Man, the last four or five movies, I've really been down. Yeah. I blame you. <laughs> That Paul Morrissey son of a bitch. That motherfucker. This Peter Weir guy with his not good movies. Make a good movie. Master and Commander, put that in the fucking Criterion Collection. Yeah. Bro. Bro. <laughs> Bro. Bro. Weir. Bro Weir. Yeah. I heard they call him Paul Weird down in Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Classic. And hey, folks, uh, just a little heads up. There will be another episode in between. But that'll be a present you can open up on Christmas Day. I'm not aware of this. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, you will. I haven't agreed to anything. Well, happy holidays, folks. See you in hell, you filthy animals. Rosebud. Yes, rosebud frozen peas. Full of country goodness and green penis. Wait, that's terrible. I quit. Just a handful for the road. Oh, what luck. There's a French fry stuck in my beard. Oh, yeah.